ACN efforts. This episode sponsored by Liquid IV. It's a better Gatorade. They probably don't like it that I would even say that in the same sentence, but it's true. And I got to say, this is delicious. Great way to rehydrate and fuel those endurance activities. Or if you just want to zhuzh up your water. As some of you know, I'm training for the unsanctioned McKenzie Marathon. Uh, it's not going very good. And Liquid IV is in my bottle, not because of Liquid IV. It's some tasty stuff. Been a big fan of the lemon lime. Non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. So you know your burly vegan digs it. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com. Use the promo code CNF at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order. When you shop better hydration today using promo code CNF at liquidiv.com. Oh, and by the way, it's an affiliate thing, so I get no money unless you buy stuff. So buy stuff. I like the sound of that. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens in our atmosphere stays in our atmosphere. Oh, hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, that creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Yes. It's a fitting time of year to talk about this book with this author, John Valiant, at John Valiant on Twitter. And you're spelling Valiant, V-A-I-L-L-A-N-T. Got it? Don't ask. Just do it. Fireweather. A True Story from a Hotter World. It's published by Knopf. John is a journalist based out of Western Canada, and he's also the author of The Tiger, The Golden Spruce, and The Jaguar's Children. Little sidebar. Just by the nature of the show, I don't have a whole lot of time to read outside of the reading I do for the show. But if I did, I'd want to read a person's body of work. You know, the way you might watch several movies to see a through line of a favorite director or a director who inspires you. At least with that, you can watch a few movies in a day if you were so motivated. To read even John's books would take you at minimum, at least for me at minimum, a full month. Minimum. Probably longer. I read pretty slow and I'm okay with that. I see some people on Instagram and it's like June 1st and they're like, book 51 of the year and I'm like, eat shit, asshole. We're all real impressed. I'm sorry. That was inappropriate. Make sure you're heading over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. Just click the lightning bolt on my website or visit rageagainstthealgorithm.substack.com. There could be some serious bonus stuff coming down the pipe. Maybe. Probably not. But maybe. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. If you dig the show... Consider sharing it with your networks, wherever your networks hang, so we can grow the pie and get the CNF and thing into the brains of other CNFers who need the juice. And don't we all need the juice? You can also leave a kind review on Apple Podcasts. It's a free way to support the show, so the wayward CNFer might say, shit, I'll give that a shot. And a non-free way to support the show, which makes uh, me kind of happy, and it might make you happy too. Patreon.com slash CNFPod. You can drop a few bucks in the hat if you glean some value. Show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. And I started doing some one-on-ones as a little bonus uh, for people uh, in the Patreon gang. Any tier uh, might offer something a bit more saucy for the upper tiers. But I I did this thing. I just wanted to throw a bone out there. And it's uh, not going to be a regular thing or maybe twice yearly. 
I guess that's regular. Uh, but I threw it out there, and a chunk of patrons, uh, maybe 25% of the whole pot, are, are getting to talk some things out with, with me. Sometimes that's all you need, right? All right, I'm going to close that spigot off soon. So if you're in the Patreon gang, sign up before I shut it off. And if you're not a patron, patreon.com slash cnfbot. If you're wondering where the shout-out to Athletic Brewing is, it's right here. My favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but as some of you know by now, I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you go to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, and use a referral link over in the show notes, you can get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points towards swag and beer. Give it a shot. So, John... You can tell he loves the work because we talk about getting into the nitty gritty of interviewing and interviewing with some heart. He gets that from his mom, you know, and that's definitely where I get it from. My mom's superpower was making people feel comfortable talking. Um, She's still kicking in the nursing home uh, about the same as ever memory wise, but, you know, wasting away as one does in their 80s in a wheelchair as their brain slowly turns to mashed potatoes. I will. Anyway, John and I, we talk about interviewing for scene, getting into someone's skin, and how Twitter actually helped John. And fire. Cue Beavis voice from Beavis and Butthead. Fire. 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 Yeah, it's all here, CNFers. Riff. I love that quote from uh, David Wallace Wells. Uh, Unfortunately, exquisitely timed. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that it was uh, was uncanny. Uh, yeah, planning that seven years out took some doing. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great. I think that's a great jumping off point. Just the 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 sheer fact of how long books of these this nature so deeply and intricately researched, and so and then of course so well written that uh, how you stick with it and endure, you know, just the whole, the entire process and not get too bogged down by it. Of course, there are moments of getting bogged down, but when you, when you're talking about a seven year book project, you know, how do you, I don't know, just stay in it and stay, uh, energetic for the, for the work. Ooh, uh, Brendan, this was, um, I thought about that every day <laughs> and, uh, this was a really different animal. Like the other books have, you know, have been pretty much three years door to door and really steady work and few breaks and just kind of plodding through it at a, at an, in an energetic way. And this was really different. And I think the Trump years had some impacts on that. The, the kind of the ominousness of, and the implications of the project um, you know, what I was actually looking at, you know, is so grave that it, you know, it, I don't know if it slowed me down, but it really made me question what I was doing. You know, I, I feel, I don't know if other writers you've interviewed have, have thought about this, but I feel like in a way to, to write almost requires a certain level of civilizational stability. You have to be able to sit quietly in a room and have some confidence that the world isn't going to burn down around you. And so it, it presupposes a certain base level of, of stability in the world. 
And when you look really closely at the climate file right now, even right now at this minute, you look at the fires burning, record fires in Canada, you look at record uh, ocean temperatures off the coast of Ireland um, and elsewhere, you know, we're at, we're in a moment and it's, we've never been here before. And so I was feeling that as I was writing and really almost, almost daily wrestling with myself, how can you rationalize sitting at a desk, opining and exploring and investigating when really you should be at the barricades? So that's, you know, that was a real quandary for me. And I think that slowed me down. There were a lot of days of just not writing. And so I think in some ways, this project, maintaining energy and momentum for this project was slightly different than some other long projects that other writers may have undertaken. Uh, I've got a friend right now who's doing a, a definitive biography and, you know, he's seven or eight years in and he's still not done. And, you know, it's a long, complicated life he's trying to cover. And it's a it's a really long haul. And so then you have the deadline, you have the kind of the ticking clock of the advance running out mm-hmm. um, just in terms of the finances of, of how nonfiction works, at least in the U.S. and, and North America. Uh, so there, that's a factor. And then, you know, it's a it's a funny combination of uh, tedium and anxiety. And, and then on top of that, you know, you get these dopamine hits of discovery, you know, when you find a new fact or make a new connection or get a new interview or figure out where a quote's going to drop in for maximum effect, or somebody on Twitter points you towards something amazing, you know, which happened to me a lot. Twitter, honestly, was my uh, research assistant for this book. And that, that was really a first. And that might be interesting to talk about at some point. It made me smarter. It made me wiser. And made me seem like more people than I am. And so I'm really grateful to it. But as far as maintaining that momentum over seven years, you know, you just get up and, and put your ass in the chair. And and it's really, you know, that's the main job, even in spite of all your doubts. And you have made a commitment to your publisher and also to yourself. Your family is out there kind of waiting for it to be done. And so there are a few... I think very healthy social pressures kind of keeping you honest and, and, and keeping you on task. And then there is, in this case too, complicating it further was just the dynamism of the subject. Between 2016, when I decided I wanted to write a book about modern fire and Fort McMurray and, that, and the terrible fire that burned through that city uh, in May of 2016, uh, so many things happened on the climate file. So many greater and, and even more terrible fires broke out in other parts of the world. And so many states, provinces, and nations had the worst fire season in their respective histories post-2016. And so I'm riding along. And when I was working on the Tiger or working on the Golden Spruce, those stories stayed where you left them. You could put them down for a month and you go back to the notes, you go back to the narrative, nothing has changed. Here, you look away for a week and there's some new extreme that has been, or some new threshold that's been crossed or broken. There's some new climate lawsuit. There's some new um, information about a bank or an insurance company 
dropping some major petroleum project. And this was all relevant. And so really right now, ongoing is this period of an incredible cataclysmic epochal change in terms of how our civilization reckons with the powerful manifestations of climate change that are now besetting us from all sides. Yeah, there's a moment very early in the book where you when you're talking about the 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 bitumen sands in, in Alberta and in Fort McMurray, where like the and it's a very hard uh, petroleum to refine just based on the, its very nature. Uh, but there was something like, a, you know, you know, that it was like a half trillion dollar investment. And I was just like, oh, my God. Here is this like a very labor intensive, resource intensive way to harvest this fossil fuel. Whereas, my goodness, what could a half trillion dollars do if we were to just invest that in like the best solar or wind technology, right? Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying. You know, when you think of the the money and energy and and most valuable the time that we have squandered, really since the nineteen seventies, when the, when the climate writing really was already on the wall, when photovoltaics and and wind power were in their infancy, but clearly um, viable. Uh, And, you know, we really lost almost fully two generations and we're, you know, still melting tar out of subarctic sand. Hmm. You know, I mean, our descendants will look back in amazement at our insanity. And it, you know, it's really hard to to wrap your head around that hydrocarbon recovery endeavor going on in northern Alberta that has been so front and center in Canada's economy and certain certainly Alberta's economy. And it's um, especially when you consider all the natural gas that is used to melt the bitumen. Yeah. And natural gas is really great energy on its own. You know, methane aside, um, greenhouse gases aside, it's already ready to burn, ready to go, ready to create energy for us. And so to squander that energy on melting tar out of quartzite sand, a thousand miles from the nearest market uh, or tidewater is, you know, it's really a stretch. And so to figure out the economics of that, the rationale behind that, why a G7 nation would waste its time, treasure and reputation on that is, you know, that's a that's a big ask in and of itself. And that was just kind of one aspect of this book. You know, a, a moment ago, you I loved what you said about the dopamine kick of occasionally finding that like that that great little tidbit in your research just by by virtue of like having the ass in the chair. And yeah, I, I can attest that just the other day, you know, my central figure died in 1975, and I'm I'm starting. My deadline is so tight that I have to kind of write as I'm going at this point. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I had this, you know, this moment, you know, there's this high school track meet, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it, it was, had a little bit of detail, but not a whole lot. And then I read the story from 1975 when my guy died and turns out like his, his, what would, who would be his future college coach, Bill Bowerman was at a track meet and he had never said he was at this particular track meet when he was, when Steve was a high school freshman and he, in this sort of obituary piece, he's like, I remember seeing him at this meet and I was just like, Oh, that's so cool. Like now I get to infuse this very early scene and, and plant him as a character at this particular meet when this kid was on the rise before I never knew that. I'm like, oh my God, that's such a great little detail that I get to go back in time and put it there. 
and it's uh and I talking about that dopamine kick. It's like I just had one. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really feel you there, uh, Brendan. And also what you're doing is you're making a connection for everybody else. No one else probably cares enough with respect to make that connection. And yet what you're doing is, is creating this, this structure of history. And, and by being able to place those names and place those events in time and space, and taking the care and time to do it that only, you know, an obsessive nonfictioneer will do, or a historian, you're really reassembling a lost world. And it's very possible that if you hadn't done that, that connection, that link, that moment would be lost to history. And it's, um, so you're really kind of performing this service for the future, I feel. You know, we are collectively, yeah. by kind of assembling, you know, uh, and identifying these links. And it's really this web work uh, of events and people and intersections of time and place. And, you know, I, I did that repeatedly in Fireweather. And it's it's really thrilling to do that. You know, you're kind of re-peopling the world and events. And, and you know, this thing that might have just been, you know, a, a symposium when you can actually put the people there and realize, oh my gosh, you know, this guy was there and she was there and he was there. And they've kind of gathered across space and time to make this new meaning. And that is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a kind of rarefied thrill that I think, you know, historians and nonfictioneers and other types of researchers particularly enjoy, but that readers and people coming later to the story appreciate even if it's unconscious they just they can just see more you get a richer sense of detail and depth and that's what that's what brings the story to life all those connections they're almost like synapses for the story yeah and then it comes it, it, uh, let's say like baked into it is a kind of researching insecurity too or an anxiety in that like sometimes you're like you can't turn every single page you can't read it all by yourself yeah. And what are we missing? Yeah. Like I stumbled across some of those details. I'm like, oh my God, like what else might I be missing? Like when I run out of time. <laughs> oh, Brendan. I mean, I think that's, that's everybody's, everybody's fear in this game. And I mean, the other, the kind of the, the corollary terror is not asking the right question. And, yeah. you know, I, especially going into subjects, you know, I, every subject that I research, I don't really know much about when I go into it. And my and I have I have my own, you know, basic curiosity about it, and I'll do some reading about it. But if you don't know to ask the right question, you know, each question is like a key, and and when you ask it, you're opening up a new box and uh, or a new safe or, or or you know some secret trove. Yeah. But if you don't ask that question, your subject may take it for granted that you know already because it's second nature to them, but it's actually really interesting. And so, you know, for example, you know, in, in Fireweather, I, I had occasion to speak to bulldozer operators and they, um, you know, started telling me things about how you operate a bulldozer and, and the way, how actually sensitive it is, despite the fact that it weighs 50 tons, um, you can feel incredible subtleties of, of terrain change through your seat. And um, they, you know, offered that one up, but it, it wasn't something I would have thought to ask. And, and once I, I got that little um, 
trace of a hint of information. Then I started probing more about the sensitivities of these giant machines. And, you know, they're really quite surgical. And it's such a contradiction when you, you know, see these things grinding by, you know, along, you know, the side of a highway or something like that. It's, you know, they look like such blunt instruments, but really the, the people operating them are incredibly sensitized to every twitch and, and bump that they encounter. And I just love that, that kind of thing because it, it enriches our understanding of something that we think we already understand. You know, I mean, what's, what's not to understand about a bulldozer? You know, it pushes dirt around, but actually um, they are almost like 50 or 100 ton bubble, bubble levels. Like you can feel exactly how crooked or off-center you are with, in, with incredible uh, specificity. And, you know, I just never would have known that. And, and yet, you know, these guys who are sitting there smoking and, you know, their boots are untied and they look, you know, kind of unkempt, they're actually really tuned in. Yeah, to, the, to that point, you write really well about almost the animalification of fire and how like alive it is. And there's a really mm-hmm. good set piece like in the first third of the book or so just where, where you really just talk about the science of the fire, but also just how like alive it is. And you really like, kind of like changed it in my head about my perception of it. Here I am thinking the flame is just this mere erasure of heat, like a release of heat. But then it, it ends up being this breathing thing and it and it's uh and there it's releasing different volatile gases within certain structures and then it just feeds off that and pulls it towards it. And it's uh I imagine just like the bulldozer, you know, anecdote, you were really learning about fire in a ways that you likely didn't know before. Oh yeah. No, I really go in as a, you know, an, an ignoramus, you know, with some questions and, and the more you, you burrow into it. And then I realize, wow, I really don't understand how this works. I'm really going to have to, you know, basically apply myself with, with more vigor. And, you know, I'm, I'm a layperson. you know, I'm not a science guy. I'm interested in science. I appreciate it. I appreciate it the same way I appreciate jazz music. I don't really understand what's going on, but I understand that those folks are geniuses and it would behoove me to understand it better. And I feel the same way about chemists and physicists and climate scientists and meteorologists. You know, they really have taken the time to, to master a really complex series of, of events and, and elements. And so be able to grasp that well enough to basically explain it back to my layperson self in a way that holds up takes a, a huge amount of, of time and effort um, because you're really almost having to, to reverse engineer it. You have to break it all down in its technical terms and then reassemble it using similes and metaphors that someone like me could understand, but that, are, that still hold up for the science. And, and just, um, I'm proud to say, I, was, I just did a, a reading last night in Bellingham, Washington, and a chemistry teacher was there and he came up to me afterward and he said, I just want to tell you, you know, your description of fire behavior and how it works was correct. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah. Uh, good for you. And, you know, he was impressed and I was <laughs> really relieved because, you know, I'm way out of my <laughs> comfort zone here. I'm cantilevered pretty far out on, on a lot of this, uh, of the science. And, you know, I really made an effort to fact check it and, 
and, and get it right. And I ran it through, you know, past fire scientists and some other experts. You know, I do that, you know, before I let it loose in the world. But still, there's that fear, you know, of some detail that is obvious to an expert that is not obvious to me that's going to, you know, sneak through and end up, you know, in the final version. And then you're just going to have to live with it. Uh, and the, you know, the embarrassment of that. And, um, and I just don't want to be wrong. You know, you want to, you're serving your readers, they're trusting you, you know, they're investing money in the book, or at least time in it by reading it. And you really don't want to betray that trust. So you really want to have it right. And so that chemistry teacher really, uh, you know, put me at ease, slept better last night. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great to hear. And that's sometimes the the greatest compliment when you're dealing with uh, some very nuanced and or even esoteric uh, uh, topics within, say, fire. And to know that you you got it right with someone who is like deeply like steeped in the science of a thing. And meanwhile, we, we are just kind of like tourists in it and we're just trying our best to be good tour guides for the reader. And so when you stick the landing on something like that, it's like, whew, man, that does feel good. And yeah, you do sleep better that night. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's really the greatest vindication for me. I don't know how it is for you. But when, you know, like if a firefighter, you know, reads fire weather, or a climate scientist read it, or or an incident commander, or, you know, or somebody like that, um, you know, that's really the, the highest praise, because you're reflecting their reality that they're experts in, accurately back to them in a form that they can respect and recognize. And that's, it's really hard to do. And um, that's, uh, you know, that's really what I strive for. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's really a joy uh, to be read, you know, by anybody, frankly, um, but to have somebody who is, you know, a, le a legitimate expert in the, in the subject that you've uh, decided to take on is, you know, it, it's kind of like winning a prize for me. You know, it's really, um, it's just, uh, it's a kind of ultimate validation, I guess, that I, that really meter, that really matters a lot to me. Yeah. There, there are like so many tasty, uh, so, so few, uh, tasty breadcrumbs along the way and many opportunities and many off ramps for you to like question why you're doing this and like, damn it. Like, should I, you're writing a book. You're like, God damn it. Like, uh, this is the last one. There's no way I'm doing this again. Uh, but then, <laughs> but then you get those little shots that, 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 that stuff that puts fuel in your tank. You're like, oh, okay. You know, that, you know, that's part of the reason why I do this. And then you're just like drawn in. Then you're like Pacino and Godfather three. It's like, ah, I'm, I'm, it pulls me back in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh it's, it's a very seductive medium, you know, for those of us uh, who have the bug and it's, um, I mean, I, I guess it, you know, in a way it's that when I think about what I write, I'm thinking about, well, you know, I paint what I see, you know, and, and this is, these are the things happening in the world that that compel me. But I think of a you know a landscape painter kind of setting up outside, and how did you choose that horizon? How did you choose that time of day, that particular situation, and why do you want to then go out and basically recreate it? You know, I, I think about that a lot in terms of uh, creation with a capital C, and in terms of just the world as it is, warts and all, and. You know, as a as a nonfiction writer, you're trying to recreate that. So you are trying to paint what you see, and yet what's what's there already is perfect. 
because it is like it, it exists. So regardless of how you feel about it, it's its own kind of perfection because it is manifesting on earth and at this particular moment. And so as a writer, as a renderer, uh, I, I see our role as trying to rise to the level of creation, you know, which is kind of the most audacious task. You know, it's kind of like, son, you know, your arm's too short to box with God. And, and that's, um, you know, as a writer trying to render uh, something that already is at a level of detail that you could never match. The, I, the audacity of trying to do that in a way, the foolhardiness of it or the vanity of it is something that strikes me on a regular basis. And yet it's totally compelling. You know, it, it's really like uh, it's this irresistible challenge. I love what you say about like painting what you see and, and so much of the challenge of, of narrative nonfiction is at times painting what you can't see. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, beca- mm-hmm. what was the challenge for you when you weren't on the scene to still create vivid, vivid cinematic scenes, despite you not being there to witness it? That's a, that's a really good, uh, a really good point. And, you know, I, when I wrote the proposal for this book, you know, back in 2016, you know, the fire had broken out and it, it had burned through, you know, this city of, you know, 90,000 people and caused, you know, historic damage. Um, but I wasn't there. You know, I was, I was in another country, actually, at the time. And so as I r- wrote it and, and recreated some of the scenes, some of the moments, and, you know, one of my editors was reading the proposal, she thought that I'd been there. She said, oh, so you went up to Fort McMurray? And I said, no, I actually, I haven't been there yet. And, you know, through, I mean, you know, YouTube is really a boon uh, in terms of being able to see, you know, what what you missed. But also, you know, you don't have the smells, you don't have the, the visceral experience of being in it. And so to create that, to kind of make that what I would call an empathic leap into the scene, um, that requires this extra level of being able to kind of transpose your senses into that place and draw on everything that you know about fire, about the subarctic, about a suburban street, about a melted car. And you may not have experienced those precise things, but you have to kind of draw on a lifetime of, of experience. You know, I've traveled a lot, I've, I've done a lot of things, been a lot of places. And so I'm able to kind of patchwork together these sensory memories in a way that basically create a simulacrum of authentic of authenticity in that moment even though i wasn't there and so you know i take the the you know the street name and the and the name of the town and the date you know from the records that exist and then after that you're kind of um layering up the paint if you as if you will you know over the over the canvas to get that sense of depth and authenticity of experience so that then the reader coming along you know there you've you've situated them in place and time and then on top of that you're giving them this sensory experience and that's where you know the english language is you know maybe unparalleled in terms of its versatility and energy and ability to convey nuances of sensation. 
it's really, really fantastic. I feel honestly incredibly lucky to be a native English speaker uh, for that reason, because I feel like there's this just infinite colors at my fingertips, going back to the painting analogy, uh, that you can kind of subtly and not so subtly shade the scene and and really give it a kind of three-dimensional extrasensory pop. Yeah, the in interviewing people for those sensory details, it can it can be just really um, it can be really awkward uh, to ask those to ask those questions. And uh, I know when I when I do it, it's it's where I'm like, all right, can I know this is hard. I know it was a long time ago, but uh, do you know the weather? Do you know the do you remember the smells? If I was running right behind you, what would I be seeing? Yeah. And it's like, it yeah, feels yeah, weird. Yeah. And they kind of, you can feel them just kind of went like, I don't know. It was so long ago, blah, 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 blah. But I think mm-hmm. we got, we got to get over that. I, I wonder for you, just like, how have you learned to just maybe, I don't know, get over that awkwardness because in service of the story and those details, it, it ultimately makes for just a far better book. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. And, and the most kind of egregious extreme version of that for me was, was interviewing Yuri Trush for the tiger. And so he was the, the Russian warden charged with hunting this man eating tiger down. And it was a really desperate, you know, it was kind of the, this kind of ultimate game of literally cat and mouse, except cat and man. And the, the ending was not, by no means a foregone conclusion about, uh, you know, who would prevail. And I really, I interrogated that poor man. And I, I had a Russian translator with me. And because he was a warden, because he was a lawman, he respected my basically obsession with detail. And so I was asking him what kind of socks he wore, you know, what type of boots he wore, you know, were they lace up, you know, were they Velcro, what were they made out of? A a lot about his firearms, about his clothes, about his vehicle, about the quality of the snow. And we, I literally went back to him every day for a week. So hours and hours each day. And we just kind of wore each other out. And, And to his credit, he stayed with it. But I think when people understand your motives, uh, that you are really trying to get it right, what you're basically doing is showing respect for their reality and for their experience. And so I think a lot of people respond positively to that. You know, once they trust you, it's like, wow, this guy really cares. He cares as much as I do. Maybe he even cares more than I do. And that's kind of wonderful to have that kind of attention beamed on you because most people really don't care what you think or what you say or what you did or what happened to you that day and so to have somebody like us come in with a with a genuine intelligent interest and not you know a parasitic manipulative interest and you know that's there's a whole ethical piece to being a reporter and an an interviewer that that we can get into um, because there is this kind of mercenary uh, aspect to it um, and at the same time, uh, when you're in it, when you're in that experience together, you know, my mother told me that, you know, the definition of charm is the ability to get people to talk about themselves. And so, you know, that's something that I learned from my mother and I'm good at it. And, you know, by kind of leaning in and showing an intelligent interest and knowing just enough about the topic that you can ask a question that almost sounds like, oh, wow, you've done this too. And then you're sort of in, in the club then, and then they might give you kind of an extra layer of detail that, that you didn't know about. 
And so slowly, slowly, you can kind of recreate the scene in, in incredible detail. And, you know, you can see that effort in the tiger and you can see, you know, the patience of Yuri Trush, you know, sitting with me day after day, working through moment by moment, move by move, you know, this desperate hunt. And, the, you know, the same, you know, with a running, with a foot race, you know, or a boxing match, you know, you want that, that level of detail, that, that literally blow by blow kind of um, granularity. And that, um, you know, we'll all go there, you know, as readers, as watchers, as fellow investigators and enjoyers of the human experience. You know, we, we want that level of detail because we know what it feels like, too. You know, we can put ourselves there. And that's a real gift, I think, to the reader to be able to kind of step into this other skin and, and inhabit it uh, in a really vivid way. And you know, there's just no other way to get that. Yeah, the step into the skin. I, I love hearing you say that because one of my favorite things, because I'm talking to a lot of elite athletes uh, and I, I preface the thing by saying, I'm like, this might sound a little weird, uh, but like when things were going good, when your body was just in its prime and you were having a prime day, like what did that feel like? You know, where you're running down the, to the long jump pit. You know, I am, uh, asked this one woman, Fran Worthen, she was very, very, very good long jumper. She was just like, ah, oh, she, you know, she almost was like, rolled her head back. She was just like, it, it was like I was flying. It was, it was great. And to hear them articulate when their bodies were just so primed. How does the discus feel when it comes off your lead finger when you've just spun three times and you know like that thing is going for a world record? Like, tell what is that like? I'm never going to experience that. What was that like? And you can see them really come alive, even on the phone when you're not even looking them in the eye. You can just you feel the energy of like, wow, this person is really trying to get to the heart of my craft. Oh, Brendan, I can I can just feel my own you know interest you know just. Because already you're describing things that I had never really thought about and I'd certainly have never experienced. And, and yet to, you know, we want to know what the extremes of the human experience are and, you know, you know the, the lows and the highs. And to be an elite athlete, you know, in her prime uh, with this kind of almost supernatural power where you're harnessing, you know, the momentum, you know, of the object with your own body, with your own skeleton, you know, with the, the temperature of the air and the density of the air that day and all getting it in sync mm. for the for maximum effect. You know, only a kind of a genius can do that. I'm thinking of, you know, these kind of, you know, like a transcendent jazz solo or something like that. You know, when someone is so fully in the zone that it's angelic. And, you know, a normal person cannot do that. In fact, you as an elite athlete may not even be able to reproduce that. Yeah. So there was some synchrony in that moment that was perfect. And how amazing, you know, to be a human being and experience it. And how amazing to be a writer and have the really the privilege and opportunity to convey that experience for the rest of us who are, you know, schlumping around, you know, in our sweatpants and slides. Right. Well, that, that gets to the point of, and it, it's very fitting, a very fitting uh, metaphor, so to speak, about uh, about interviewing and stuff and, and seeing it 
as a sort of a, a renewable energy instead of an extraction industry. And, mm. and by, mm. you know, and it can be viewed, you know, with the ethical part that you were alluding to a moment ago, how interviewing can, you know, you could treat it like scorched earth, just burrow down, take all the oil and move out of Boomtown, or you can really <laughs> invest in yeah. being like truly, truly enamored by their craft while still extracting information, but it is a more nourishing way of utilizing the time and the privilege it, it is to speak to that person. Brendan, I, I really think that's a good point. And, and because I do think an in, in interview well done elevates everybody. And, you know, the interviewer gets what they want. They get this material and this deep detail. But I think, I mean, the older I get, the more I realize that pretty much 90% of what human beings want out of life is to be seen and heard. It's really simple. Yeah. And a, a good interview, the subject really feels seen and heard. You're really there attending to every detail and validating, you know, this intense experience they had. And I, you know, I went through this a lot with, um, you know, in Fort McMurray, you know, you're basically interviewing people about the worst, scariest, most devastating day of their lives. You know, they saw their house burn down or they, you know, trying to escape this fire that, you know, they literally don't know if they're going to live through it, you know, and the kids are in the back seat. you know, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a terrible thing to put a human being through. And then to put them through it again by saying, so tell me about it. And, you yeah. know, they're, you know, I saw a lot of grown men cry in, in Fort McMurray and that's a tough town. You know, that's a, that's a hardworking, you know, petroleum town. And, and, you know, that fire wounded a lot of people. And so to talk about it and create a space that's safe enough and trustworthy enough for them to kind of go through this trauma and, and feel some of it, you know, in a, in a, in a fulsome emotional way, uh, in a way that they don't, you know, have to guard against or have to be strong for their kids. They can just know, you know, I'm really weeping right now. And, uh, and it's, that, that can be, I think a really healthy release for the person who experienced it. And, and it's a really, you know, in that sense, I feel like, and I don't think I'm kidding myself here. I feel like you can really almost be doing a service. Uh, it's almost beyond just an interview. You know, you're really, it's almost uh, a, a potentially therapeutic, you know, kind of intervention where you're creating a, a safe place to release some of the tension from that event. And, you know, I, I really, you know, experienced that a lot. And as I went back and checked back in with people, you know, on, on upon publication of the book saying, look, you remember that interview we did five years ago? Well, it's actually getting published now. And I just wanted to check in with you, you know, about that, you know, are you still good with that and all this? And they had really good memories of our conversations and kind of wanted to fill in the gaps and, you know, relive some of the things and talk about where they were now. And so it really, you know, that ended up, I think, being a positive for them. And that really was reassuring to me and made me feel better about, you know, essentially invading their privacy. It really gets to the point where I, I well, I think a lot of reporters and journalists can have uh, are seen uh, potentially as like vultures of just trying to like rake up all this information just for their own personal gain in their stories. And to hear you like go back to those people and be like, Hey, this is going to come to light. You know, we had this raw conversation, a long conversation, very detailed several years ago, but now it's coming back. And so the fact that you're showing that degree of understanding and empathy and 
uh, with them. I, I think that just goes to you know you as a person, but also as a really like uh, maybe like like a really like a, a tender-hearted non-fiction storyteller, where it's just like you're not just this well of information for my own gain. Like you're a person, and I want to honor your stories. And it's it's really cool to hear you say that. You know, there's been a lot of talk about empathy, I think, over the past few years and, and in the context of, of journalism and reportage. But, you know, we are sentient connectors and the more open we are to the, the feelings, the needs, the experience of others, you know, the, the richer it makes our lives, but also the more connected we feel. And you know, when I'm talking to someone, I, I just sort of intuitively feel my heart going out to them. It's not a conscious thing. It's not like, well, this is, you know, how I was taught to, you know, have a bedside manner, you know, and it's more just who I am naturally kind of operating in a structured way in the form of an interview. But I think, you know, it really is an asset to be emotionally open and available and, have access to your own emotions. And, you know, you know, honestly, you know, Brendan, as I was writing this book and I would go back through some of these interviews, I would really just, you know, start tearing up as I was getting into some of these intense parts. Cause I was thinking, my God, these people, they went through that, you know, and, uh, and it was really hard to imagine them suffering like that. And then also just my relief that they survived, you know, like, my God, they're still, they're still around, you know, they get to be with their kids and they get to, rebuild and they get another crack, you know, at life, you know, that was so nearly taken from them and not all of them made it, you know, there's some, there's, you know, we lost some people, you know, in that book, but um, it's, um, you know, there's a real relief and kind of vicarious happiness that they, that they gutted it out and made it through uh, intact. So that's, um, you know, it feels like a, you know, a victory kind of for the, for the human race. Yeah. Yeah, and, and up the Mackenzie River here, you know, east of Eugene, uh, in 2020, in September, over Labor Day, there was the Holiday Farm Fire. It was a giant fire. It laid siege to a lot of a lot of houses, and a giant tree uh, tree farm just went up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you've probably heard of it. And uh, and it um, and it gets to the idea of uh, of wooey, the the wildland urban interface, and. Yeah, you know, all these houses going down, and 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 a lot of people want to you know rebuild up in that area. And but this is the risk you run when you build into a fire ecology, and it's a uh, I it was it was really uh, illuminating to 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 read what you were writing about you know wooies and and the fact is like you're just asking, you're almost asking for this to happen to a community if you build into these ecologies like this. Well, it's almost like having a deer farm you know, in mountain lion country. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're going to eventually jump the fence or find a way in and kill your deer. And uh, we've grown up in a really unusual time in history when, you know, never besides this past century have we had such an illusion of control over nature. And there's so much of it we've been able to, quote unquote, manage, including fire suppression, and, you know, which really achieved incredible heights after World War II, as I'm sure you know. And we're kind of paying the price for that, you know, by stifling fire, by stifling these natural impulses and these natural purges that forests require, especially in the West. Um, we're really, you know, creating a hazard for the future. And, you know, and 
it's not the sole cause, but you know, one of the reasons, you know, 21st century fire, as I call it, burns as intensely as it does is because there's this incredible fuel buildup. And, um, you know, when that goes, it goes off, you know, with an intensity that a normal, quote unquote, healthy fire uh, on a landscape that had been burned over regularly wouldn't wouldn't achieve. And so, you know, we've really uh, created this problem for ourselves and, and, and hand in hand with that elevated fire suppression ability has been this idea that, well, we can live anywhere and we'll be safe. And, you know, no people, you know, stopped living in the forest, you know, in the, in the 19th century, really partly because they got burned out so often. And if you looked at, you know, if you look at many settlements around Europe and traditional settlements, you know, in, in the East coast of the U S you know, historically they, you know, they were broad fields all the way around the community. And some of that was for ease of pasturage and, and planting, but also it made an incredible natural fire break. And so the forest could burn all it wanted to, but when you've got, you know, hundreds of acres of fields all the way around your um, village, you know, you'll be protected. And they learned that the hard way. And Stephen Pine, you know, really the the uh, eminence grise of, of American and, and really global fire, an amazing writer and historian. Uh, he, you know, writes about that really eloquently, describing um, uh, watching these communities burn, these wooey communities burn down. He said it's like watching polio or cholera come back. You know, we already figured out how to vaccinate for it, how to cure it. And it's like we forgot the lesson. And as people moved into the wooey, as they really started to do, you know, combining with the, the explosion of suburbia and then this more recent desire to live close to nature and have, you know, running trails out the back door and a cul-de-sac out front, um, we really forgot that, no, actually forests, especially in the West, are extraordinarily flammable. And, and, and this is a part of their normal life cycle. And now you've put this permanent and really quite volatile structure that's worth a lot of money and takes a lot to insure right in the middle of it. And, and so you're really kind of asking for it. And now I think with these, the elevated temperatures due to climate change and the drying that, that goes hand in hand with elevated temperatures, we've now ratcheted up the flammability of those wooey communities in a way that um, you know, really wasn't the case, say, in 1990. You brought up World War II uh, a moment ago, also. I mean, about you know fire suppression and stuff of that nature. And there's there's a there's a moment in the book where you're looking to uh, you know, a, a fire expert to exp, ex, ex, kind of uh, describe what was going on with Fort McMurray, and he brought up the Hamburg firestorm and the fire bombing of Hamburg by the Allies over uh, over in Germany in World War II. And I was hoping maybe you could speak to that and uh, the hunt you went on to try to draw that corollary, which, you know, you did so well. Well, it was such a surprise. I mean, there was so much about this. I mean, this, again, is one of joy is kind of the wrong word in this context, but one of just the really surprising and energizing aspects of being a, a researcher and a reporter. And the discovery of it, right? The discovery of things that you literally cannot imagine. And one of those was, as I spoke to firefighters, you know, one of them casually said, yeah, it took about five minutes for these houses to burn down. And I'm, you know, like, did I hear you right? You know, this, this is a two-story house, you know, that 
up in Fort McMurray, they run about, you know, between $500,000 and $800,000 a piece up there. These are brand new homes, state of the art. Uh, it's a very, very wealthy community. And in 2016, when I was first researching up there, the median household income was $200,000 a year. A very, very wealthy uh, petroleum town. And so the houses reflect that. And these houses were burning down in five minutes. And it just didn't sound physically possible physically possible. And I kind of pushed back on this firefighter. And he said, Yeah, I know it sounds impossible. But that's what was happening. And so I said, Okay, you know, I'll, I'll take that with a grain of salt. And then I interviewed some other firefighters who were in different parts of the city, uh, in different neighborhoods that also burnt to the ground. And they said, Yeah, that was about five minutes. And so, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around this because the, you know, a house weighs about 50 tons, you know, it's full of a lot of stuff. And, and just think of how long it takes to burn a two by four. You don't burn a two by four in five minutes. It takes half an hour to burn a two by four, even under the best circumstances. So what is going on there? So I wrote to Vito Babrowskis, you know, I was looking at, you know, Googling around for, you know, house flammability and, and domestic fire and came across this guy, Vito Babrowskis, who's based in Seattle. And he's kind of the go-to guy uh, for um, structure and household goods flammability. And he's, you know, written a couple hundred articles and some really big books, textbooks and things like that. So I wrote to him and I, you know, I, I said, you know, these houses were burning down in five minutes. And he was aware of the Fort McMurray fire. And I said, you know, how is this physically possible? What's going on to make them volatize that quickly? You know, so imagine throwing a milk carton into a bonfire. That's how the houses were going up. And he wrote back, you know, re really surprisingly quickly. And he said, yeah, that's a tough one. But the Hamburg firestorm is a good place to start. And the idea of an intentionally set urban fire that was initiated by hundreds of allied fighter bombers drawing, dropping literally thousands upon thousands of tons of thermite incendiary bombs onto the homes of the workers uh, of Hamburg, Germany in, in the summer of 1943. I, I just never would have occurred to me to, to use that example as a way to understand what happened in Fort McMurray. And I started reading about that firestorm, which was intentionally set, you know, so to the point that allies, uh, Americans, hired German architects to recreate exactly German workers' houses uh, in uh, the Hammerbrook neighborhood of Hamburg, and they built these in Utah in, on a bombing range, and they bombed them over and over again to, to get, you know, figure out what was the right combination of, of thermite uh, to get these things to really go up. And uh, they, they were intentionally trying to start a firestorm, and they succeeded. They did it on a really hot day uh, after a period of, of, of minimal rain. And the firestorm of, of Hamburg, uh, you know, is legendary, and it, and it created you know, cyclonic winds and, you know, human beings were sucked into it and the streets melted and fire trucks burst into flame, you know, hundreds of meters from open fire just because of the radiant heat. It was it was absolutely apocalyptic and totally man-made. And so as I was trying to wrap my head around the horror of that and then think about Fort McMurray, which was 
you know, it was another working town, but it was a wildfire that came into the city. So what's the similarity? And then I started realizing, well, actually, a black spruce tree heated to a thousand degrees is a lot like a firebomb. Uh, th these are very flammable trees that are actually designed to burn the boreal, the boreal forest system in northern Canada, all the way around the northern hemisphere, uh, is is a fire dependent system that regenerates itself through periodic fire. So black spruce is one of those keystone species that that initiate you know, responds to fire with great exuberance. Uh, so firefighters literally call it gas on a stick. So imagine drought conditions uh, around the city of Fort McMurray. Uh, imagine a relative humidity of 11%, which is comparable to Death Valley, which is 2,000 miles south of Fort McMurray. Imagine temperatures of 90 degrees, which is almost 30 degrees above normal for that time, that period in May in the sub-Arctic. Sub and then in introducing a wildfire to that, to those conditions, you get these explosive circumstances that when they come into a modern neighborhood, we discover that the modern house is actually filled with petroleum products. So in a way, between the black spruce and the petroleum infused houses, vinyl siding, tar shingles, all the laminates and glues that go into plywood and flooring, and then think of all the polyurethane and the, and the synthetic stuffing in the upholstery, all that stuff volatizes, certainly at a thousand degrees, and it doesn't catch on fire, it explodes into flame simultaneously. So in a sense, the city firebombed itself mm. between the black spruce trees and the heavy petroleum content in every home. Um, it was perfectly designed to explode into flame. And that's not what we think about when we think about building a house, moving into a, a house, raising our children in a house. We don't think about them as potential firebombs, but you get them hot enough and that's what 21st century fire is capable of doing, it ch totally changes the nature of what your shelter is. And it's really a, a mind bender. You know, it, it, I've had to spend a lot of time with that just to think of, you know, what a home can become under extreme circumstances. In, in the same way that, uh, you know, someone with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, uh, I, I wonder for you, like now that you know so much about about fire, how has just the nature of our world and just what you know about fire, like how do you now see the world around you? How, did, how has your view of the world around you changed based on what you know about fire behavior and fire weather? The world is a much more volatile place now through my lens. Yeah. Um, and I look at you know, where I live here in Vancouver, you know, I live in a very thickly settled neighborhood of hundred year old wooden houses. You know, they're great, basically great big boxes of kindling. And if we had another heat dome like we did in 2021, you know, we were pushing hundred, hundred degrees here, uh, which is insane for Vancouver, British Columbia. You add a stiff wind and uh, some kind of fire accident uh, you know, you could lose the whole west side of the city. And I'd never really thought about that before. But, you know, cities have, wooden cities have burnt down in the past. And, you know, with the extreme heat that, that is now much more common, um, fire likes that. 
and fire is energized by that. And so that is a real concern to me. And then the other piece of this is going back to the petroleum industry. Uh, you know, the petroleum industry is a fire industry. The only reason we're interested in fossil fuels, whether it's coal or natural gas or bitumen or uh, oil, is because it burns. And, and so we you know we talk about the energy industry or, or, the, or the oil and gas industry, but what we're really talking about is a fire industry. And we are surrounded every day by, by thousands of fires, um, you know, whether it's, you know, in the cars around us, in our pilot lights, you know, in our stove, in our water heaters. Uh, fire is uh, part and parcel of our civilization. But with every one of those fires comes emissions. And when you multiply that times billions, uh, which is what we're dealing with now, you're really going to impact the container that is our atmosphere. You know, it's, you know, like, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, mm -hmm. what happens in our atmosphere stays in our atmosphere. And what's happening in our atmosphere right now is that vast quantities of CO2 and methane are being emitted into it and creating the conditions for a much more, a much warmer climate and a much more combustible climate. And so we're living in a more fire prone world now. And so that's something I think about every day. Damn. Well, the the book's in, incredible, John. I really, I, I really ate it up. I, I loved it and just you know, learned a lot. And then just was also just amazed at your capacity to to build scenes too, which I think was a masterclass in that. Which is a you know a ton a ton of fun to read, and also just as someone who admires that kind of thing, I was like, wow, this is a this is handled well and in the hands of someone who like, was truly skilled. Um, so as we bring this conversation down for a landing, I always like to ask a guest for a recommendation of some kind. And that's just anything you could be excited about these days. So I'd pose that to you, John. Like, what are you excited about? And uh, what might you recommend for the listeners out there? Oh, boy. Well, thank you, Brendan, you know, for, for your really kind words and just for your time and interest. I really appreciate it. It's really fun to talk about this and uh, with a fellow practitioner. So I really appreciate that. Um, and... Uh, as far as, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Timothy Egan is a guy I have a lot of time for and who I really admire and just, you know, a fantastic American nonfictioneer and historian. And if you haven't uh, read The Worst Hard Time or seen the documentary film of that name that he made with Ken Burns, I really urge you to watch it or read it because it captures in microcosm an environmental breakdown, a climate breakdown, totally driven by capitalism and, and short-sighted greed with a clarity and succinctness and vividness that, you know, is, again, speaking of master classes and masters, it just really um, is, a, is a beautiful example. And, and you know, if, if I was in charge of education, I would have, you know, every 11th grader on the continent, read that book or watch that documentary. And an, another one like that for me that really, I think, honestly, sort of set me on the path that I'm on now is David McCulloch's uh, early work, The Johnstown Flood, about the, the famous uh, flood that, that washed away that Pennsylvania town, I think in 1889. You know, it was really the worst disaster on American soil, you know, and that, it, that record stood. I think it may still stand, you know, 
a couple of thousand people died in terms of the, the uh, I think it was in, not until maybe the, um, uh, the Galveston flood, uh, you know, was that number surpassed, but the way he describes all the contributing factors, you know, it was a completely man-made environmental disaster mm. that was completely avoidable. And he just, you know, without wagging fingers or being judgmental, he just kind of lays out the conditions and lays out the human foibles that led to this catastrophe. And I just find that so interesting. And, you know, both those books are kind of parables for our current situation uh, around climate and, and petroleum and, and just the, the conflict between the limits of the natural world and our own appetites and what uh, we are being persuaded to buy and, and how much we're being persuaded to use every day. And so that I just feel like those are really timely and kind of eternal evergreen um, books and stories that continue to resonate for me. Oh, that's awesome. Well, 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 John, like, thank, thanks so much for the work you've done in this incredible book. And again, thanks for carving out time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Brendan. Uh, power to you. And uh, I'll be listening. Nice. Thanks to John. He's at John Valiant on Twitter. Remember, it's, a, it's pronounced Valiant, but it's spelled not like Valiant. V-A-I-L-L-A-N-T. He's at johnvaliant.com, uh, but it's a website under construction, so just go to Twitter, okay? Mm-hmm. And the name of the book, again, is Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. Don't forget to rage against the algorithm with me over at Substack. I pulled away from Twitter, way the fuck back from Twitter. Uh, I logged out. Uh, the coward's Twitter deletion. I hang on to it because I'm a cowardly invertebrate, which is another way of saying I'm a coward. Uh, but also, sometimes Twitter comes in handy to find people. That's what I tell myself. Been enjoying being logged out of Twitter uh, and playing with notes over on Substack. Uh, to me, it feels like what Twitter used to be around 2009, 2010. And it's such a writer, reader-centric ecosystem, naturally. And so it just feels more wholesome, if something like that can feel wholesome. So the writing and the research. Mm, oh, I should say parting shot here. Uh, the writing and the research are rowing in the same boat together. Uh, the research is in the bow, you know, saying I'm king of the world, and writing is in the back, shoveling fucking coal into the furnace, saying fuck you. Now I have to make sense of all your bullshit, motherfucker. And the research has a telescope saying, like, look over there. What beautiful land. And the writing in the back is planning a mutiny. He's like, keep talking, you bitch. To quote Kurt Vonnegut, my, my hero, he said, you know, when I write, I feel like an armless, legless man with a crayon in his mouth. My God, and a dull crayon at best. I had a double goose egg this past weekend, writing-wise, which meant I needed to, so, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with the goose egg term, numerical terms, it's a zero, and a, I had a back-to-back zero day, Saturday, Sunday, just wasn't motivated I usually can blame that on being hungover, but I wasn't even that. Uh, so I knew that starting the week, I, ne- I needed back-to-back 500-word days to get my average back up to 285 per day. You know, that's not a scenario you, you want to repeat very often. Seeing that daily average drop is terrifying. You know, I was at 
278, so not on pace exactly. Then I had that uh, my first zero day, and it dropped to 264 average. Ugh. And, and then another zero on Sunday dropped it to 251. And now, now we're starting to panic. Now things are getting weird. And that's when I needed to string back-to-back five Hondos. Okay, I just I was like, what happens if I do 500 Monday, 500 Tuesday? Okay, that gets me back on track. So I did 534 on Monday, got the average back up to 264. 447 the next day, average up to 272. Shit. And then 659 on Wednesday, and the average is back up to 288 and back on pace. As of yet, today, at this recording, I have done zero. And I'm not hopeful about a 285-word day. So if I type in zero, type, 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 that drops the average down to 277. Okay, it's just eight words shy of average. Not bad. At least I... At least it's not going to crater the process. You know, I have a leak in one of my gutters, and during the rainy season, I let it drip, and I place a protein canister yeah, uh, under it. And uh, sure enough, after a few solid days of Oregon rain in the month of, let's say, I don't know, February, the can fills up, and I can water plants with it. You know, for my temperament and my relative privilege, the drip-by-drip way of writing really works for me. Uh, For now, I can afford to do that with the time I have and the leash I've been granted. You know, for others, binge writing and turning the spigot on full blast is their practice, and that's fine. You know, there's no one way to do it, which is why I bristle at, quote, like, advice in podcasts, because the case study is always what worked for that person. You know, if you just have, like, a passing curiosity about how people work, you know, fine. That's great. Uh, Frankly, the best person to ask for advice is a past version of yourself. You know, trial and error, scientific methods, see what works. And more importantly, you know, what's repeatable? Because that's the only way you'll finish anything. There's an epidemic of unfinished projects. But it's tricky because sometimes hearing about a writer's approach might give you a spark. Like, oh, maybe I'll try that. I, I like to say, like, add to cart. You know, you just throw that in the cart and, and free two-day shipping and you can apply whatever you want. You know, but, but really what it boils down to, and this is more or less a quote from Austin Kleon, you know, people want to be writers, but they don't want to write. You know, fall in, fall in love with writing, and then you, you'll become a writer. This is what he really says. He said, forget the noun, do the verb. You know, he, Kleon writes in the book, Keep Going. It's the whole Stephen King pencil trope, like using, you know, if you went up to Stephen King, well, what pencil do you use? Thinking that that's going to channel the energy. You know, using the same pencil as King is not going to make you king. So stop looking for a shortcut or a hack or a wormhole to get you to the other side of Saturn. Experiment, play, maybe hire a coach, wink, wink. Listening to others talk about creativity is fine. I do it, I love it, you do it, you love it, presumably. But it's no substitute for confronting the fucking dungeon boss on your own and realizing you had all the power you ever needed in the first place. Use the force, Luke. Stay wild, CNFers. If you can do, interview. See ya.